Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm your host again, Jay Hersko. Uh, this week's episode, uh, we have a very, very special guest, a guy I've been looking forward to talking for a while. We're going to talk about his book, Seeing Money Clearly, Using Throughput Accounting to Understand and Manage Knowledge Work. Uh, joining us from, I believe, Montreal, Canada, Mr. Dan Dwaron. Yes. Dan, thanks okay. for joining. Thank you, Jason, for the invite. I really appreciate it. We, we are we are glad to have you. So um, for those listeners, uh, Dan has been posting this book. He was actually posting chapters through his LinkedIn. So if you weren't following him, you missed out. And when the book was finished, I actually, I was one of the first people nailing down Dan's door to get a physical copy because I'm a, I'm a big reader and a big note taker. So Dan actually sent me one real quick and, and it took me a bit to digest it. So here we are to talk about it. And uh, we're probably going to end up doing to our listeners, we're probably going to end up doing a second episode as long as I can find more of Dan's time because there's there's so much here to cover. So yeah. we, ha- we have talked about throughput accounting before, Dan. We had Graham Scott on, we had Clark Ching on, we talked about these things a little bit. Um, but I think let's, if you wouldn't mind, I want to start with a basic kind of like question, a lead-in question where there's the idea of financial accounting, there's yes. the idea of management accounting, which some people may or may not be familiar with. Our MBA stu- uh, audience definitely is. But yes. then there's also throughput accounting. So how do I how do I compare and contrast those three things? Okay. Financial accounting, basically, for all intents and purposes, is what uh, you consume uh, as an investor, the published financial accounting that are mandatory by the uh, SEC. Uh, they are uh, have to be published in a standard format and abide to uh, generally accepted accounting principles. Management accounting basically is for internal decision-making. If you take your financial statements as audited and try to make decisions internally for managerial purposes, you will shoot yourself in the foot, but that doesn't prevent uh, most organizations from doing Trying to do it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which... uh, as early in 1916, uh, those who started uh, inventing the standards for financial accounting said, please don't do that. And today, as we stand, not a single word in all the thousands and thousands of pages of uh, financial accounting standards have ever said, hey, use those for internal management. They never said so, and rightfully so. But anyway, that's another story. Management, uh, throughput accounting was an idea is a child, the brainchild of uh, Dr. Eli Golrat uh, from the theory of constraint. It, it's a lot of things. But Eli liked to compete on time. And Eli liked inherent simplicity. And basically, with throughput accounting, as with all the other applications that he developed, he really nailed, uh, hit the nail at the proper place to basically empower all of us to be able to make decisions at the operational level with three simple accounting variable. Delta throughput, delta, can I make more money of this? Delta operating expenses, is this gonna cost me more money? And delta investment, will I need to reduce or increase my investments following my discussions? So this is the delta world, the marginal world of decision-making. Everything that you make, that you think you're going to make, always look at the incremental effect. And this is basically what throughput accounting is. It's also a full financial accounting system. It is a decision-making system. It is an improvement uh, model, like the PUGI, process of ongoing improvement model of the theory of constraint. 
and basically every time you make a decision with throughput accounting causality has to be involved if you make a decision today it has to have an impact tomorrow there is no delay causality means you do you take a decision and the impacts are quick to appear and uh, this as a side note this is probably one of the reasons that i included in my uh, in my book all of the uh, flow principles of uh, Donald Reinertson, uh, because all of them, each and every one of them, has a causality dimension to it. Donald Reinertson mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, is, is a big thought leader, and uh, I, I, found a, I found a nice place for him in my book. I, I, speaking of Mr. Reinertson, I am convinced, Dan, I'm convinced that is Principles of pro uh, product development. What is it? Principles of product development flow second edition. I am yes. convinced that that is the one book that almost every agile practitioner I have ever met quotes or references, and yet maybe one out of every one hundred have actually read it. I'm convinced. Yes. I'm and convinced. if you have not read that book, and you have your somewhere in your title, agile is that, scrum master this, uh, center of excellence this just get the book right right it's and i'm actually working my way through it again oh and every I, year i read it i i listened to an interview with uh, that don just did recently where he talked about how the best way he has heard the best way to go through his book is read a bit and take a step back yes. and think and let it and marinate and how do i apply this and yeah it, it truly it truly is brilliant and, and yeah oh, excuse me coming over a cold it's not a not as hard to get into as one would think so no so I want to I want to build on build on that Dan. So we talked about financial accounting, management accounting, throughput accounting. Uh, early in the book, you talk about you give examples of flawed mental models, right? Flawed, yes. flawed ways of thinking that yeah. we mm -hmm. we use that may be either antiquated or outdated or kind of just silly. And one of the first ones that I never thought about it this way until I read it in your book is the idea of labor as a variable cost. Yes. And how we talk about how knowledge workers, right? And I think about what I did, right? I am arguably a coach. I am paid regardless of how many widgets we ship. Our developers are Absolutely. paid no matter, no matter how much code they actually deploy. Yes. So we look at that as a as a variable cost when it's, no, it's, it's a fixed cost. It is what your cost for labor yeah. it is what it is. Yeah. Why do we why do we struggle with that, Dan? That breaking our head around that concept? Well, we, we don't struggle because we still treat it as variable cost, okay? So nobody has still, nobody has set the light on that. So, Basically, in the 1920s, if, if you were to make a chair, Jason, and it was truly not acceptable, I will destroy the chair and I will not pay you. Mm -hmm. In that sense, you as a laborer were a variable cost. Now, today, whatever you do, uh, if you program and there's full, of <laughs> there's full of bug and you shut down the whole city, you're still going to be paid, right? So... Uh, labor costs are now uh, labor costs at the time were uh, you know uh, part of uh, the total cost and today with knowledge workers and the salaries that were paid it becomes a really big dimension and when you do your projects and let's say you got the if, if, if you treat laborers as variable cost you will make mistakes in selecting projects all the time okay and uh, this, this, this is something that cannot be stressed enough. 
if for I was talking to you about the deltas, you know, at the beginning, mm -hmm. like the delta or, or operating expenses or the delta this or the delta that. So Jason, I got news for you. You've been a worker for my company for 10 years and you're budgeted, okay? And uh, sorry to say, but at the beginning of the year, you are not involved in any delta, okay? You're part of the, 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 the operating expenses that I will have to incur. So if I have a project A, B, or C, or D, there's no point in me accounting for you in either of these projects. And if I do, I will make a big mistake. That, that, that's for budgeting, okay? Mm -hmm. I will make a big mistake. When it comes time to cost, okay, to take your timesheets and enter them in the system, that's another story. You, 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 project costing is also important, but in that time, you're just like any other one. Uh, you got to put your costs into the timesheets and all that. But if you do not mind that, uh, a good 70% of your projects that you'll select or ignore will be totally for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. So labor costs for permanent employees and contractors that have been there that are assigned for five, six years are part of uh, fixed costs of capacity. Whether you use them or not doesn't make any difference. Whether you put them on project A, B, or C, or D doesn't make any difference, okay? Right. So stop, stop account for, for budgeting purposes. Don't do that. If right. you have a consultant that you need for an expertise that is really specific for a special project, then you got to treat it as otherwise, as a variable cost. Right, right. And you actually, you, <laughs> there was a line in the book where you actually said capacity is a flat line. We need to start thinking about it like that. Yes. And I, I thought that was like, it was one of those like so simple. I was like, you know, the, the head slap. Yeah, reaction. it's a flat line, horizontal, okay, not vertical, okay, mm -hmm. horizontal. And, 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 and basically accountant, uh, traditional accountants and managers uh, uh, still fail to understand this uh, uh, and it's a constant, a constant battle because I teach CPAs and I just can't mm -hmm. get my message across. They, you know, when, when I tell yeah. them, you know, this capacity is paid for, use it or not, doesn't make any difference. And right. uh, they, they, they just have big problems uh, understanding this. It's got to be something in the the pedagogy or how it's actually taught. So you just use yeah. an interesting word, Dan. I'd like to I'd like to go in on that a little bit. You use the word capacity. Yes. And one of the things that shows up again early in the book, which I had never thought about this way, but I like how you call it out. The idea of there are three types of capacities in the system. There's productive, there's protective, and excess. Yes. So the, so we'll, we'll, I'd like to explain this to viewers because I want the uh, listeners, because I want them to understand. So when we'll start with the bottom level, right? So the yeah. bottom level is Productive capacity, which is mandatory. What is what does that mean? What does that mean? Productive capacity, productive capacity, sorry, is the one that is necessary to basically for you to function and to feed the constraint. Okay. okay. If you do not have productive capacity, uh, you're basically not able to produce at your fullest. Okay. But um, for this uh, productive capacity, it's the only one that lean and uh, traditional accounting understands because the other layers, which is protective and excess capacity, uh, they consider those as waste. And if you try to level productive capacity everywhere, like a, a, like a balanced flow, 
basically what you're going to have is chaos and mayhem as soon as a hiccup arises, <laughs> okay? And, and people just keep fighting on having level capacity and they spend their whole time on this. And what the theory of constraint and Eli Gorat says, no, you gotta, you're gonna have unbalanced capacity unless you want to fight it out and go to your grave. So you're gonna have to have unbalanced capacity. Right. So you need protective capacity above the productive capacity to protect the constraint and also to catch up. If ever something wrongs happen, you have then what we call sprint, sprint capacity where you can basically uh, re recuperate from your hiccups, okay? And then on top of everything, you have excess capacity. This is where Slack lives. Mm -hmm. uh, people talk about Slack and give a lot of talk about Slack. They think that the mere fact of lowering width will increase Slack. It's not the case. It's not the case. It will hurt you more and it will help you if you think in that line of thinking. Right. Right. And um, there is no, according to the theory of constraint, there's no organization that can uh, survive or perform uh, if it doesn't have that slack capacity. And uh, everybody in Agile understands this and vouches for that and uh, are flag bearers of this, but no one understands how it really works. Because people say, oh, I'm managing my slack, I'm doing this to my slack, I'm doing that. Well, slack lives in and of itself without mm -hmm. you doing a thing about it, as long as you have the proper productive, protective, and excess capacity. And one of the, so to, to jump off that, one of the remarks you made in the book, which I, I wrote down because I thought it was interesting, uh, you actually call out how protective capacity, right? So productive is, at the, is the demand and protective is at the constraint. The yeah. protective capacity absorbs variability. And yes. that for me was a big, like, Again, like the yeah, mushroom yeah, yeah. cloud, right? An eye opener because I never, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, but if yeah. you, but the more you, and you actually in the later in the book, you actually walk through it when you get to the Reinertsen section, you go through a, a, an example where that will that protective capacity at the constraint will allow you. And we talk about buffers at one point. It allows you to absorb um, variance in a system without yes. creating just the, the wheels, uh, the wheels coming off. I guess the equivalent to our technical minded listeners would be think of a tightly coupled system Yes. where if the components are not modularized and too tightly coupled failure in one will result in a cascading effect. So that protective capacity absorbs the failure and or cascade, um, uh, elegantly, I guess. It, is my, it, it gives you a chance to, uh, basically, uh, what, what is called sprint capacity. Uh, if everybody, if ever at some times a constraint has a hiccup and you've got to go faster than the constraint, this excess capacity or will allow you to get to the market and preserve your lead time and your throughput. If, like all accountants and, and lean, for example, believe that it's you need balanced capacity, as soon as there is a hiccup, the whole thing falls apart. Mm -hmm. You know? Yep. And, and this is something that uh, lean uh, and, and traditional accountants just won't understand. And, and, and uh, Eli was very clear. The need for an unbalanced system in terms of capacity is essential for you to progress because you only have to focus on that part of the system. Instead right. of focusing on every part. Focusing right. on every part is what people do when to their own demises, they they uh, they fail and that ties to i mean you have 
But there's a line later in the book about idle work versus idle worker, right? I've used yes. that question numerous times, and it gets people to think. Um, and, and but to your what you were just saying, you were hinting at is when it comes to managing a system. Um, somebody somebody used the term in a meeting yesterday, which I'd never heard before. Have you ever heard the term Dan bike shedding? No. So it's a term, and it's meant to what it's meant to represent is. Um, people will spend an inordinate amount of time on the smaller things that don't make much of a difference. And the term comes from you and I are part of a project that's building a nuclear reactor and over experience. It's, it's an outreach. It's an, it's a, it's another flavor of Parkinson's law where we will spend an inordinate amount of time debating where do we put the the sheds that we park our bikes, (laughs) right. As opposed to the nuclear reactor. And I thought that was really, really fascinating. The idea of, um, creating that that slack in the system and oh no where i was going with this was um you talk about you want to minimize your managerial oversight this is a big one here everybody write this one down you want to manage my man minimize your managerial oversight at the non-constraints so this is why are we so back to bike shedding right why would i worry about managerial oversight of something that's downstream or upstream if the constraint is beating the drum by which my my of which my throughput is created, my yeah. my my profit is made. Yeah. Who cares yeah. about anything else? Yeah. And my my analogy to this uh, is basically U curve optimizations. Okay. Everybody's heard about U curves optimization. Mm-hmm. They're fantastic at the constraint. Everywhere else they fail. You see. And the way we've been born is to use U curve optimization for this, for that, for that, for this. Uh, it's fine at the constraint. The constraint has to be humming and be non-interrupted and work at full throttle. The other parts of the system have slack. And if you use U-curve optimization anywhere else but at the constraint, you are shooting yourself in the foot. So when you're not at the constraint, just don't start coming up with metrics that are going to be bad in terms of resource utilization and all of that. So don't... Uh, don't uh, don't go that way. Let let people work, and when they don't have work, uh, idle time is fine. Um. So speaking of idle time, there's a we're going to bounce around a bit. There's a diagram. I think it was on page forty-seven. And uh, for those listeners, Dan actually sent in uh, some slides with some of the examples of pictures. I'll post them into the show notes. So you get so you can visualize what I'm saying. Um. And for those that are familiar with the typical wait time versus work time camel diagram. Dan, you actually break it out numerically. What happens if I have a, a process that takes 100 days, 95 days of wait, five days of work, and where should I invest my money if I'm looking for a 20% decrease and a 20% increase in productivity? Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you 20% of five is only one day, whereas 20% of 95 is, I, it's, I forget how many days. Exactly. I, I, I actually used this in a college class. I teach a, I teach a class at Drexel University, and I brought up this example, the exact math, the whole nine to explain yeah. how minimizing wait time is the most important thing you can go after. And literally, there were jaws on the floor. There were, yes. I, I saw people writing, like drawing the diagram that I did on yeah. the whiteboard because it's you put it in a way, Dan, where it's the best mathematical i love math because math makes the yeah. argument for you yeah, it's the you. best mathematical argument to say look this is where we gotta this is where we're gonna spend our money I, yeah. I, yeah. people people think that improving the key to improving is to basically try to get more and more and more efficient and better at what we do but uh by working less and uh, reducing whip reducing the amount of inventory in the system uh, wait time is going to go down uh, compared to touch time 
and reductions in wait time are exponentially uh, come exponentially faster and bigger uh, in terms of uh, potential for growth and improvement. And uh, people just uh, have, have, forgotten, have forgotten that. And every improvement initiative, the first thing they'll do when they step in, whatever, mm-hmm. they'll try to tell you, hey, let's improve the way you work. Let's change the way you work. Let's do things differently. But the theory of constraint doesn't say that. And Tupac Gandhi doesn't say it's a, just stick at what you're doing, very much like Kanban, and um, just reduce the amount of whip in the system. Wait time will reduce, and then you'll see your problems uh, more, more clearly, and your lead time and your throughput will automatically increase, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, th- th- this is a lesson that uh, Donald Reinertson has told us since 2009, and we still uh, have to uh, apply it. We're still learning. We're still learning. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, and, and regarding those solutions, you had another, there was another thing here where you said that um, accepting solutions that shrink lead time yeah. is a flawed mental model. So we just talked about touch time and wait yeah. time. Dan, what, what are we losing? When, what are we missing when we have this initiative to decrease lead time? What, what is, yeah. what's the blind spot we're not seeing around? Yeah. Well, lead time, lead time, uh, lead time. Uh, lean, lean is very keen on on uh, in terms of their improvement. If you reduce your lead time to the market, uh, well, there you go. You, you you're the winner. But let's say that you improve for uh, your delivery from ten days to nine. And uh, if you're not hitting the constraint, at the end of one year, uh, the only thing that you will have saved is one day. Okay, on a, on a sequential process, because it didn't hit the constraint. However, if you were to hit the constraint, okay, and let's say increase the process from 10 to 11 days, but reduce the time of the constraint by one day, then this one day will recur every week, every week for the entire year, and you basically save 52 days instead of one. And, and, and it's hard to show and to understand uh, without having a thorough explanations of this explanation of this. But the, the focus on trying to reduce lead time by not impacting the constraint is basically what you're going to get. You're going to get you're going to spend 50 bucks to save one day. And right. at the end of the year, you save one day. <laughs> right. Right. So which is not smart. Right. Why, why would we why would we even think about that? So. Yeah. One of the what so again we're centered in we're centered in the idea of theory of constraints and you have a call out here um, about you know the constraint is the drum by which the value comes through the company and then you have another there was a quote here which I bolded and underlined in my book where it said increasing capacity by buying capacity should always be the last resort especially at the constraint so that goes back to cost being our earlier conversation where um, costs are. and capacity is capacity. Why? Why is this so important, Dan? Because this is another. This is another knee-jerk reaction of the whole. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. A baby in one month, nine women. The whole that all analogy. Exactly. If you increase capacity at the constraint, then you're basically elevating it, and uh, basically it may no longer be the constraint. The constraint will change, because the constraint is always the place where you have the least capacity. Okay. Now, if you want to manage a constraint, 
the, the last thing you want to do is to elevate it, okay? Mm -hmm. You want to exploit it. You want to identify it, exploit it, and subordinate it. Now, going after green money to improve, green money is, is fresh money that you would spend. It's money that you don't normally have. Uh, is always an expensive proposition because if you want to increase your capacity five-fold, you're going to have to buy five companies of the same size. However, if you want to increase your profit five-fold, you can use brown money, operating expenses that you already have, which will not be changed, and you basically identify the constraint, exploit the constraint at its fullest, and subordinate to the constraint, and you will get your five-time uh, increase in, in profits without having spent a dime uh, of green money. You're going to use your operating expenses, which is there anyway, uh, and which I call brown money. Brown money is familiar money. It's money that uh, your top 10 customers will bring in year in, year out. Mm -hmm. It's also the money that you're going to spend year in, year out to maintain uh, uh, your salary cap and things like that. Uh, but green money is, is new money. It's the most rewarding kind of money when you receive it, and it's the most expensive kind of money when you've got to spend it. Do not spend green money on initiative, an improvement initiative. Like all the improvement initiative movements are trying mm -hmm. to sell you, focus on the constraint with brown money, identify, exploit, and subordinate. Perfect, perfect. Um, I want I want to speak a little bit, Dan. I'm going to bounce around a bit. The idea of um, uh, variation, variability, special yeah. cause and common cause. So, and I actually I might have you teach this back to me because I think I followed it, um, but I want to get your your take to make sure I understood it correctly. So, in the book, we talk about Reinertson and we talk about you know manufacturing, where in a manufacturing environment, we're all familiar with the term, the andon cord, the cord that the cord that you pull to stop the line. Yeah. That is special cause variation. That's yes. I notice something I want to, you know, all hands stop. Yeah. And this and, is a this is a way like the Kanban board will, will work when you see something odd. You pull the andon figuratively and you and you storm the board and try to figure out things. Um, what <clears throat> there is there is an economist that won a Nobel Prize uh, a, 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 a long time ago. His name was Lucas, Lucas, and uh, he had a line of thought that was called Lucas critique. He said that whenever you have something out of a model that works and you use it in a different context, you're falling into a trap. Mm -hmm. And basically what, what we've done with lean manufacturing is that we imported a lot of things, a lot of things like going to the Gamba. Uh, it's not necessary in knowledge work because, uh, uh, the one that's going to the Gamba in a manufacturing environment knows a lot more than the, the workers, but it's not the case in knowledge work where <laughs> I can't figure mm. out what everybody else is doing. Um, and, and so basically, we imported everything for, uh, for a special cause variation and no support for common cause variation. And Donald Reinertson has been very clear. And could I read the book, 2009? He says... Common cause variation have a much bigger impact in improving and reaching stellar profits than they do in lean manufacturing. Because lean and manufacturing, you know, if you're building a car off of a chain, the chances of you getting a cigars are pretty slim. Okay, so there's not going to be any uh, mm -hmm. surprises in that regard. But in knowledge work, you know, you you can get pretty pretty nice prizes. And basically, what Donald Reinertson says, listen. 
the tools that you work, the process that you have, the people you interact with, these are all part of a system that you can improve day in, day out. And, and, and it's not the case in the manufacturing where the production change will never change. Right. And he says, so you got to pay attention to that and you got to manage that. And uh, we're left and agile with uh, nothing to chew on. Uh, and my book uh, basically tackles a good part of this, uh, saying that uh, what have we done and where are we going? Because common cost variation is where the most significant improvements are going to happen. And, and this is where your system, Agile says, oh, there's complexity here, there's complexity there. Wow, complexity, complexity. Well, I'm sorry, man. But uh, your uh, software Oracle version 11 is not going to wake up tomorrow morning with address. Okay. <laughs> right. So uh, it just doesn't work. Right. The, way, the way you do things, the way you work, it's not going to change overnight. And there's uh, plenty of opportunities uh, lying around there to basically identify the constraint and milk it and mint money and uh, improve. I'm so glad you ex you explained that because that's where my brain got stuck. Special cause versus common cause, and it does make sense, right? And and we know we've you and I have had this conversation. We've acknowledged that some that's some of the problems with some of the thinking in the agile space is we've inherited a bunch of lean manufacturing, yeah, yeah, trying yeah. to apply that to knowledge work. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, the remove your eliminate your common cause people, and you're going to have a much better, much um, the variation that comes out of the system. Like special cause variation is. Um, everybody gets sent home for a year because of COVID or something like that. Whereas yeah. common cause, if you can eliminate that, like you said, less surprises. That Reinertson quote um, is brilliant. And I, I'm, for, for the benefit of our listeners, I'm going to read it verbatim where he says, so if product development is your game, don't think that going to a Gemba is going to solve your problems. It won't even identify them. <clears throat> Almost nothing that is truly important is physical in the, visible in the physical environment of software engineering. Critical issues like batch size, overlap of activities, sequencing of events, margin of design, architectural partitioning choices, and risk management strategy are not apparent by observing the physical objects. I, I lifted this and quoted it verbatim when we had a, a, a my current role, yeah. there was a bunch of people talking about going and observing and going and observing. And I said, but you're not, you're only going to see a team working in their ecosystem, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, their yeah. microcosm. You're not going to see what's really keeping them up at night, which is dependencies, yeah. constraints, yeah. Um, all that stuff, like a, a batch size That's and invisible. too much work. Yeah, it's yeah. not something you can see by just the local yeah. view. You got to zoom all the way. But out. I took I took this view a bit further. I say, why don't you become the gamba? Why don't you become the person that people will come and see for your knowledge? Right. And and, right. and, and this is why I'm saying going to the gamba is not going to work doesn't work doesn't mean a thing but why don't you become the gamba and knowledge work be the person that people will sought that, that that will seek your advice and and this is what i think the gamba is in other words be mm -hmm. the gamba yeah um, i'm sitting here looking at my god i got so many notes here um <laughs> uh so there was another thing you talked about you talked about the importance of time and and especially in the and how managing time and thinking about in terms and in terms of time and not scope. And I liked your um, your Ellie Goldrat quote where he said he was competing on time because that time is the one resource we can't manipulate, right? And you actually have a quote here that says um, variability 
will go quadratic with the passage of time, especially if you manage on the scope axis, as is the case for most frameworks, models, and flavors of Agile. And that was another one of those, hey, put the book down and think. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's talk about Scrum, okay? Uh, you, 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 uh, you basically uh, try to uh, manage the scope. What happens uh, at the beginning of a scrum? You know, you, 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 you bloat your fish and uh, you have it go to the scrum, the sprint, and then the, the fish is totally deflated. Then you jolt it with uh, some uh, booster cables. It's come full again, and then it goes. And what happens at the end of four days when your sprint is finished and it's a two-week two two sprint? What happens? To, to, what, what do you do? Mm -hmm. What happens if at the end of two weeks, you've got to go three, four extra days. Well, you've got to kill. You've got to kill that sprint. And the scope that was there is like, have to be recycled back to another sprint. And uh, basically, <clears throat> if you take the, the, the scope analogy, uh, I would take, take it as being a table of content of a book, okay? Scope can go quadratic, okay? When, if you try to manage the scope, because it always changes, it, well, you know how it is. However, if you go on the time axis, Kanban is very good at uh, doing uh, things on the time axis. It, it has a problem on, on, on the intaking of work because uh, Kanban works from hand to mouth. You know, oh, we have capacity that was freed. What is it you want? Uh, a report takes five days, 95% of the time. And a crowd takes uh, 20 days, 80% of the time. What do you want? So you always live from hand to mouth. But they're doing it right in terms of competing on the time axis because once that thing gets on the system, you will deliver it. There's no way that scope is going to get crushed. What I'm saying in this approach is basically, instead of living end to mouth, you can have like two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, or whatever, target scopes. Target scope will execute, will finish. Okay, They will go mm -hmm. on the time axis. And... When they're finished, they're finished. And then when it's time for another target scope, you just put another one. If it goes too long or nothing or shorter or longer, it doesn't matter because time has only one degree of freedom. Time goes in one direction. Mm -hmm. Doesn't go back, doesn't go left. It goes in one direction. And it simplifies everything. And Eli Gorat understood this. And the way that he understood this is that Ford and Ono and Golrat each understood that reducing inventory in the system was the key to having stellar financial results. So what did Ford do? Well, he didn't put any space in his warehouse right. and between workstations, so there was no place to pile inventory. What did uh, TPS and Ono did do? Small batch size, small mm -hmm. batch size. But they were all competing on physical things. Now, Goldratt says, hey, I'm going to have a universal model and I'm going to compete on time. The time that it takes for the goods upstreams to come to the constraint, I'm going to calculate the time, put a buffer, a drum, and a rope. Okay? And he did so also. People will say, yeah, but uh, well, how does that apply to knowledge work? Well, the, 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 the PMI as their critical path uh, management, project management mm -hmm. uh, body of knowledge but the theory of constraint as the critical chain project management 
which is far superior uh, than the PMI. And it competes on time. Now, who uses said critical chain? Well, engineers use it a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is knowledge work. And when people say that, oh, uh, rat had nothing in terms of knowledge work, they're totally wrong. They're totally wrong. He competes on time. And uh, I, got a, I got a question for you, Dan, reg <laughs> regarding that. Um, critical, the whole critical, critical chain project management. Yeah, where, yeah, yeah. So I, I came up through the ranks as a project manager learning PMI's critical path. Um, and then when I learned critical chain, I kind of sat there depressed for a couple of days because that makes so much more sense. And yes. I think I think when we had Jack Vinson on, we talked about this. Why, why do you think critical chain has failed to get the the uh, adoption, absorption that it probably should? Because it just, I mean, it everything I've read on that makes so much more sense than what we try to do with planning critical path and a giant Gantt diagram. Why do you think it, is it the complexity? What do you, what do you think? Well, it is a bit more complex, but engineers dig it and engineers use it. Okay, so there's a big, big, big market penetration there that, uh, you know, uh, is not a problem for a, a penetration of the market. However, Eli, <clears throat> and I don't want to criticize Eli or, or whatever, but Eli would to put accounting at issues with accountants uh, because he and Taichi Ono said uh, accountants should be taken behind the barn and uh, dealt with accordingly. And I don't know if, I, I don't know if Eli had the same attitude or speech uh, with critical chain. Uh, I, I don't know that, but it could. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I wouldn't know the real reason why there's not a widespread adoption, but it is very, very much in use in the manufacturing and engineering uh, uh, sector. But it is in no way uh, as prominent as the PMI approach would be. Which is, which is really a shame. I, and I actually yes. did come across somebody who learned critical chain. I think they were in GE back in the early 2000s. And yes. they said they said a lot of people struggled because it was conceptually more work. Whereas I forget who somebody somebody said um, uh, there are things that are easy to understand but difficult to master, and there are things that are difficult to understand but easy to master. And yeah. I think critical chain is in that latter. It's in yeah, that latter bucket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crit critical chain is is a beast of its own. You know, like everything. Uh, 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 well, I wouldn't say that. Uh, yeah, it is a beast of its own. It's it's a beast of its own. So it's a monster. Yeah. Um, well, so we started. Excuse me. We talked about green money. We talked about brown money. We talked about investments. One of the things I I highlighted in the book is you start talking about um, uh, the cash to cash cycle, right? Um, make oh. more money now and in the future. And yeah. you you talk about how uh, we we need to decouple throughput, right? The idea of throughput from operating expense to pave the way to finance more investment, right? Which is called, I think it's called the TOE spread. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, Dan, for those of our listeners who are who are around project program, balanced budget, finance stuff, but who might not have heard of this, how would I, how would we explain that to them and to get them to think differently? Well, the way to finance uh, assets, I, I worked in banks and financial institutions for a long time. And, uh, when you, when you needed new assets or whatever, uh, you had to add a flag bearer project that had the money to basically finance those, okay? And uh, one of my friends, uh, Glenn Menzies, 
<laughs> once told me, hey, the first one on the bus pays for the bus, you know? <laughs> and I thought it was funny, but it, but it still creates a lot of uh, anxiety as to, yeah, we need capacity and uh, uh, how do we pay for it? Well, the secret basically, when you need uh, assets and all of that is to decouple throughput from operating expenses because this is the way that you can basically get the green money that is essential for buying new assets, okay? Because new assets cannot be bought with brown money, you know, it, it's impossible. And the way that traditional accounting makes money would be to cut expenses, okay? That's the easy way for them, you know? When you look at a financial statement, you have one line for revenue and you got 20 godzillion line for expenses. You know, guess where the focus is on that? Right. When uh, you went in a throughput accounting world, what you want to do is always, always increase sales and increase revenues and keep operating expenses the same. So you want to decouple these two lines, okay? And this is the secret, the secret basically to finding fresh money for buying new assets. Perfect, perfect. Um, Dan, we're quickly coming up on time, and I want to yeah. be I want to be cautious um, and and respectful. But I do want to I do one of the last things I want to throw out is there was a quote in here um, that I have I have I probably owe you royalties at this point, and you know I probably owe you two more copies of the book um, because I've used it so often, and now I hear other people using it. Oh, and good. your quote is, "The cost of decision making at the portfolio level defeats the purpose of decision making." And this is probably something that most of us, most of our listeners, I would say all of our listeners probably have in the back of their lizard brains, but they've never viewed it in that way. When I read that, I stopped and I went, this is, this is, this is why, right? This is the perfect example of why we need to, I mean, you want to use empowerment or any of that other, you know, stuff, Um, you know, make the, just get the decisions closer to the people who have to deal with the decisions, bring the work, you know, decision to the workers. If you think about the salaries of the people at the portfolio level, getting yeah. them to solve uh, solve something or make a decision, I, how much money yeah. did you waste? Well, not only that, but those that you invite to the portfolio meeting, because there's no discrimination as to who you're going to invite. If you have 25 projects, everybody comes to the dance. Now, mm-hmm. they all have to prepare. They all have to get ready. And then when the time comes... Uh, who's red and who's not. And uh, this guy has a budget of 25 million. He's tight on schedule, but his uh, timeline is okay. And this one is for uh, HR and this one is for payroll and this one's for marketing. Now you have got to be able to bring these projects on a relative scale. Okay. And, and this is what the, the, in, in the theory of constraint, the, the, the fever buffer charts uh, are all about. They bring all of the project, irrespective of size, scope, money, budget, product owner, whatever, on a relative scale. And you can put them on, on, on the fever chart and, and basically know who's having scope issue and who's having time issue. And with these two relative scales appearing in front of you, you can see that there's 20 projects that are green on these, on these two mm-hmm. dimensions, and there's only three uh, that are basically red. Well, just invite those three. Let go of those people who 
right. uh, basically those projects, we don't need to be there. God knows how much time it takes to prepare a portfolio review meeting. You come with all sorts yeah. of metrics. Armed for bear. Uh, yeah, you come armed for bear, right? Yeah, yeah. you come up prepared and then they're going to ask, they're going to spend time with someone that's bold green in terms of buffer consumption for the, the, the scope. And in terms of timeliness, he's okay. He's, he's, he has a good haste uh, pace. And you're going to talk to him? I don't right. think so. So basically, uh, you, you need two tools to discriminate uh, among these, uh, these various projects and know who mm -hmm. you should invite and who you should not invite so that the time can be well spent. That is a perfect way to perfect way to sum up this episode. Dan, we could easily go another two hours. Um, oh, yes. There's so much in here. Um, so I have beat the bushes telling people to pick this up for our listeners, Dan. Uh, if they want to get a copy of the book, where do they go? Okay. If you want to have the copy of the printed book, you can go to lulu.com or Barnes and Noble. And if you want a PDF copy, uh, you can go on my site, agileagonist.com. And if people want to get in touch with you, Dan, they want to follow your work, they want to maybe reach out because they have questions, uh, where yeah. do they find you? Well, on my side, there's a contact information. And just basically email me and uh, I'll be more than happy to uh, entertain uh, all of your questions, you know. Awesome. Awesome. Dan, and thank, also you. Have, thank you. I so also much. have training on my site. I was going to say, don't you, yeah. you're going to start doing training on this, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I started doing training both to CPAs and to Agile Centers of Excellence. Oh, that, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, off recording because I definitely yes. want more information than that. So, Dan, I, seriously, I want to thank you for taking the time hey. to come on. Uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, on behalf of Dan and myself, I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in. Uh, if you like what you heard, hop on the hop on the conversation in Discord. I know I'm going to start another throughput accounting channel. Uh, if uh, Shout out to Machine Man Records and Krebs, their artist who is giving us our fade out music free of charge. And once again, we're always free and it's always going to be free. Sorry about the ads, folks. Some like it, some don't, but it is what it is. If you want to contribute to offset hosting costs, we do have a Patreon as well. So until next time, on behalf of uh, Dan Duaron, right? And yes, myself, yes. Uh, I, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. Thank you, Jason.